0: Hi, this is James Scholcom, host of Webcoms and Interviews. Tonight, we're looking at the tropes of super sente and how to use them. So sit back, relax, and let the geek fest begin. Of late, I've been sort of looking at the tropes of various genres in order to figure out how they basically work in universe. That is, just because we recognize that, for example, we're going to have a team of super teens that dresses in colorful costumes, there's got to be some actual reasons for doing so. In a lot of ways, it would be sort of fun to explore the Super Sentai teams and, you know, basically see why some of these really weird tropes that we've come to accept actually exist in the actual universe. Um, You know, some of them are pretty obvious, like, why don't they start off with the biggest attack right off the bat and wipe out the bad guys? Saves a lot of time, a lot of effort, and, you know, admittedly it would shorten the episode by about two-thirds, but it'd be nice to see it happen once in a while. It's just there's a lot of silliness when it comes to the Super Sentai, and, well, it'd be fun to actually look at it. Going back in two steps, actually let's go back a little bit further. First off, the reason a lot of the tropes exist is because, well, when it comes to the writing of these things, we basically try to figure out ways, as writers, to help readers suspend their disbelief. Part of that, unfortunately, is that we need to figure out something that's familiar to the readers, and once we actually give you guys that little bit of familiarity, we can use that as a launching pad to send you into some really weird places. You know, at that point, readers have something they can latch on to, and as long as they've got something they can latch on to, like some silly little security teddy bear, hey, they're willing to go pretty much anywhere you want to send them, as long as you don't get too ridiculous. Unfortunately, this is a genre that pretty much goes there all the time. And just to clarify what I'm looking at here is, what I'm looking at are the various Japanese super teams. ...that are like Power Rangers... ...that and their ilk, you know. You take a small group of teenagers... ...usually three to five in number... ...give them extreme martial arts skills... ...colorful costumes... ...access to ridiculously overpowered mecha... ...and tell them to fight crime. Now, admittedly, John Red's whole has sort of decreased in popularity here in the United States, but... You know, we've only got one Power Rangers show currently on the air, but nonetheless, it is something of a genre that you see pop up every so often, usually to be made fun of or to actually be treated semi-seriously. I mean, we all know the basic plot of how this thing works out over the course of however many episodes. You know, you've basically introduced to a new team of young recruits that are given some sort of power costumes, uh, martial arts training to enhance what they can already do, and all of this is in response to some sort of attack, some sort of being that has no problem seeing down monsters, or, let me back up, seeing down a group of generic mooks, we're going to call putties, use the terminology, right? Once the heroes go through these putties, they then faced with a monster, they defeat the monster the monster goes to ridiculous heights, and then they have to call out the mecha and well, take out the monster throughout all this of course there's some sort of mystery as to what the good, bad guy is actually trying to get out of all of this and then once they figure that out, and it's usually you know pretty basic, it's either revenge or world domination so once that plus being taken care of the good guys then start formulating plans on how to defeat the bad guy, him or herself, take that bad guy out, and, generally speaking, status quo returns to normal. Suffice to say, we've seen a lot of variations on this. We've seen, obviously, the Power Rangers take on a lot of different areas. We've seen them go after a small seaside village. We've seen them go after... Uh, temples that the bad guy needed the power from for some bizarre reason we've even seen them go out into outer space and pretty much any variation between nonetheless they're having a few basic constants and we're going to look at a lot of those constants tonight so let's get going at shall we first off the obvious issue is the teams now, I've got a lot of personal theories on why they use teams. Obviously, there's the usual advantage that you have a lot of different perspectives as well as a different, some different skill sets that basically helps them defeat the bad guys because obviously they can draw on those different skills and different perspectives in order to figure out a strategy that they can turn into a, generally a win. So, that, you know, obviously that's going to work in and of itself. You also have the advantage that you can have a really set quick, uh, really easy to follow hierarchy. That is, you know who's in charge. You know who the second is. You know who generally the person doing the coming up with the ideas are. You've got one guy who's usually. Hmm. Let me back up on this because actually, I just realized a lot of these people actually do have names. You know, because let's get real that. These are some basic archetypes here. You're generally going to have the leader. This is the guy who's generally in charge and a little bit of charisma, usually the best looking. And, well, he makes all the decisions. You're then going to have the rebel, usually the second in command, dark brooding. He's the one with all the emo problems, and he's usually the most popular character. You then have the brains. This is a character who obviously comes up with a lot of the ideas and how to implement them, but he lacks the charisma to get the group into doing what they need to do. This is also the character who usually has some sort of computer knowledge, and generally speaking, you know, he's there's a reason to call him the brains. It's pretty obvious. He's the guy who knows all. The, he's the guy who gets the four with actually no problem, and of course, there's the Braun. This is usually the strongest guy, and he's also the mechanic of the group. Apparently the logic is that because he can lift engines, he can lift them as well. And, unfortunately, you then have the girl. The way the... And she's basically... I'm going to use the term loosely in this case, because it's not always true, but generally it is when we start talking about Super Sentai. So... The way that usually the group dynamic usually works is you've got the leader and the rebel are always at odds, but both of them have some sort of romantic thing involving the girl. The brain obviously has a crush as well as the brawn also has a crush on the girl, but they usually don't act on it because they're too over-odd between the leader and the uh, rebel. doesn't mean they don't appreciate the small kisses on the forehead or pats on the back from her, but, you know... Obviously there is a little bit of sexist issue there. However, this part of the girl can also be somebody who basically nurtures the rest of the team. She acts as more or less. If you look at the leaders being basically the father of the group, the rebel is the big brother, the brawn is the middle brother and the brain is the little brother, well, the girl is usually the mother. This isn't to say that the role can't be filled by a guy and sometimes it is. You know, you're basically looking for somebody you can nurture who's trying to make sure the team as a whole works well and if there's any problems comes in and figures a way to smooth them in. You know, the negotiator of the group. So there is a definite hierarchy there and it usually works and that's usually what makes a team work well. Usually, there actually are some drama structures where the teamwork starts breaking down and you can start figuring out it's because whoever is the problem person is working outside or allowing others to work outside this given hierarchy. And obviously, if I'm recruiting a team... A team nah, sorry, if I'm looking to recruit a team having those five different areas is definitely advantageous, especially if I'm looking at a small team that has to work well together. You know? Um, What this all translates to, of course, is that you know, you've got a very working uh, team that has a lot of different perspectives, different skills, and they can bring all these skills to bear as needed. However, I'd point out that if I was basically recruiting and I had access to some sort of uh, super science I would actually be cheating a little bit and I'd link all these people together on some sort of mental level and when you actually start looking at the technology and we'll get into it a little bit better when we start looking at the mechs there actually is some access to where you can actually link the minds of these people to other objects well wouldn't it be sort of cool if you actually linked the five people's minds together on some level? And so there is some sort of transfer of skills and personalities to a minor degree. In fact, as you notice as the series goes on, you notice that even the rough edges of the rebel tends to start smoothing and all that, and he becomes better and better at negotiation. Just as the brain gets a lot more assertive, the brawn stops, you know, trying to apply a hammer to all solutions and you have the leader is actually trying to get more empathetic to the other characters. You know? So there is a little bit of blurring over there and well obviously part of that blurring over is because they're on the same team but wouldn't it be cool if there was some sort of mind sharing technology that cre- combined all five of these and made them into some sort of hive mind? That would also mean that they would also be thinking faster and having instead of having what amounts to five computers that are basically working separate, you've also, at this point, you've got all five of them working in parallel. So in other words, you've cr- taken these five brains, and let's get real, the human brain is one of the arguably the most powerful computers on the planet. Well, if you have this mind-sharing technology, wouldn't be couldn't you decide like, to turn all five of these brains into one supercomputer? So, you know, just something to really think about, because... It's sort of interesting that you get these five people together and all of a sudden you get them together and they start working ridiculously well. I mean, not just a a little bit above average, but they're able to process information faster, react to new situations faster, and overall come up with some interesting solutions that they wouldn't have been able to come up with prior. So I think that basically those helmets they're wearing actually allow some sort of mind-sharing on some level. Not necessarily telepathy, because obviously they still need to vocalize what they're talking, but do allow them to more or less communicate on some sort of subconscious level between each other, and essentially use each other for increased processing power to make a lot of those advanced solutions possible. But hey, that's just my weird theory. While we're at it, there actually are some good reasons these people Kids are usually teens. When it comes down to it, teenagers are actually easier to train. I mean, as long as you're not into a, the rebellion phase or they have a reason to rebel against you, teenagers will actually do what you want them to do a lot easier. They actually are, in a lot of ways, a lot easier to train than adults. Obviously, they're also easier to manipulate because they're based on their judgment calls on emotion rather than logic. If you can key into the right emotion, you can get them to do pretty much anything you want. And let's get real: how many times have you seen a straight, logical approach in terms of encouraging these teens to actually do what they want? You know, it's usually, "Hey, we're going to make you, we're going to make you part of something bigger. We're going to have you help save the world, and you're going to have fun doing it." Plus, did we mention the giant mecha you get to play with? Let's get real. Almost any teenager is going to be into at least two or three of those different motivations, if not all of them. Because that makes them really easy to get, you know, get whoever's organizing the uh, kids. It makes them a lot easier to manipulate in that regard. On top of that, if you start looking at a lot of the shows, you notice that the teens are, even though they're, Serving one authority, they're rebelling against other authorities. You know, they're going and being independent on their own. They're basically taking, they're going against, you know, some definite society issues. Um, I mean, stop and think about this for a second. The a lot of the teenagers in these shows, even though they are basically going into an extreme hierarchy and definitely there's, you know, some sort of higher authority telling them what to do. They are, nonetheless, having to rebel against what their parents want by keeping their identity secret. Uh, they're trying to—they're undermining their boss's authority by running off every so often, but at the same time, not losing their jobs. You know, there's just a little bit of a, some definite, a weird situation where you've got the team, you're able to rebel, but at the same time, work well under another authority, which is sort of cool when you think about it. All this, of course, is that teenagers are able to if you give them something that's bigger than themselves and tell them to charge usually that you create a really powerful force. And on top of that it's just something that a lot of adults wouldn't really go into. You know, you've got some people that are honor-bound and all that, but adults are going to be more worried about consequences and well, salaries. Teenagers? Not so much. In fact, you Tell them, hey, we're—you'll become famous in glory. While serving in this higher um, reason, you know they're that, they're they're good to go. You don't have to give them a thing. Just send them in the direction. So all this is a little cynical, but you know, let's get real. you we were trying to hire teenagers. How'd you you know if you're looking for a group that you wanted to basically be able to be trained to tell them what you wanted to tell them. In, they're going to believe it, give them a chance to rebel and chance to serve for a higher reason, what better group is there than teenagers? While we're at it, let's look at the, uh, the outfits themselves. The, we're generally speaking, looking at really different colored spandex with big metal pieces. Sometimes there might be additional ideograms in the metal pieces themselves or designs and all that on them but usually they're pretty much just spandex with stiff parts in different colors you know the cool thing about the spandex obviously is that it's going to show off their bodies and by contrasting it in with the harder parts you can create some interesting graphic elements you know basically from a graphics perspective the spandex with hard parts tends to work. However, the big question here is why the different colors? Now, if I'm doing TV you know, it makes perfect sense. It allows you to differentiate these people plus it also allows you to, in some situations and something that tends to get abused, especially if you really, really pay attention to the Power Rangers is that you can actually cast different people as from the Rangers and cast them in their real life. The reason I'm pointing out the Power Rangers, especially here, is because a lot of the times you'll see that if you watch the Japanese version versus the American, well, obviously the American versions have been recast and look absolutely nothing like the Japanese cast. However, at the same time, you know, it's sort of interesting to... That each one of the colors is... Well, when they start using the colors, there actually are some really good tactical advantages, which is sort of funny. Um, Generally speaking, we know that if there's a red character there, that character is going to be the leader. He's going to be the most passionate, the most energetic, and the person who's going to be cheerleading everybody else on. Obviously, if there's a girl character or a feminine character, that person's going to be in the pink. And if you need somebody who's going to be thinking outside the box a lot, that person will usually be green if the color is present. And while there are other colors, and I know there's other colors that show up a lot, especially your um, reds, or sorry, especially your blues and your blacks, those don't tend to really have a strong personality character trait that's really followed with them. I mean. Blue is sometimes the second-in-command, sometimes isn't. Um, If there's a white character and just a white character, that character tends to be uh, somewhat advanced compared to the other characters. The white knight, if you will. Which is sort of funny when you realize that in Japan, white is actually seen as a negative color. Go figure. But... So, generally speaking, each one of these colors, to a certain degree, serves say, as a personality flag to the person wearing it. And you can count on that, whoever gets reassigned, you know, if some reason are reason, you know, you eliminate the Blue Ranger, but you still want a Blue Ranger, the two of them will have a roughly the same personality, just with a few different quirks. You know, that sort of thing. Um... I'd also point out that the different colors, obviously, also help define not only the hierarchy within the group, but also define the role within the hive mind, as I previously mentioned, the whole supercomputer from five different minds. Yeah, this applies even if there's only three or four, even as many as seven. Just as a side note, it's sort of interesting when you realize that the monsters seem to be colorblind. That is, the... Unless there's some, usually they don't associate particular parts or skill sets with particular characters. While there are exceptions, generally speaking, the monsters don't really differentiate between colors. And I'm not sure if that's due to some sort of speciesism or just straightforward colorblindness. I just thought it was sort of funny. Nonetheless, look at the colors of the Sometimes members, and you can notice they tend to fit certain roles. So it's sort of just sort of a really nice universal that's sort of cool. A special note is that it's sort of fun that when you start realizing that the bases of the bad guys and the good guys are usually sacrosanct. That is, the bases themselves are rarely attacked. There are obvious exceptions. Um, Occasionally You know, one of the two, the the good guy's base will be attacked like once, maybe twice if there's a really long-lasting series. But usually it's not. Also, this obviously doesn't apply if the Sentai team is focused on a particular spaceship or a city. You know, as soon as you do a situation where everybody lives there the base loses its particular holiness and can be attacked just like everything else. This brings up there's obviously different interesting situations. Going back to the fact that we basically are having some sort of mind-sharing technology, there is a possibility that the base itself could be just a mental projection or some sort of mental hangout. That is, it doesn't actually exist outside of some sort of virtual realm, and the various characters can access that virtual realm as long as they belong to the particular side. Or more accurately, the good guy's area is purely virtual versus the the monster side, which actually is a physical base. It's just that usually the monster side is too... Uh, far away from the heroes to for them to effectively travel there. So that distance alone keeps that base safe. On the other hand, if the base of the good guys is nothing but a mental projection, and let's get real, they all wear helmets, you know, it's entirely possible that the base itself technically doesn't exist outside of their helmets. Therefore, it's immune to attack. And in fact, when you start looking at the Villains that actually are able to attack the base, they're those that are able to tr- translate themselves into some sort of electronic signal. And only by translating themselves to that electronic signal are they then able to access the base. Therefore, the base is pretty much safe, which, you know, is sort of cool when you think about it. Um, other than that, obviously the entry has to be earned. You know, it's not always that easy to get to. Which I thought would definitely imply that there is some sort of mental aspect to it. So, I just thought it was sort of a cool concept. I mean, straight up, if we've already got the fact that everybody's sharing headspace, why not apply that to the um, base as well? That would explain why you almost never see the good guy's base actually being attacked. In fact, w- interesting trope is that the mecha are almost never stolen by the bad guys. I mean, they have been occasionally, but it's usually by somebody really powerful and is able to actually mentally domineer the, the various mecha. Which sort of brings up the question of, uh, you know, we already know that the, the various mecha are in fact key to the various users. We know that the users have to undergo some sort of quest to get the to basically upgrade their mecha if not just simply have the mecha in the first place we know that if you don't undergo this particular quest you can't use that particular mecha or it's upgrades and we also know that the various mecha are effectively synced to a suit you know if the the yellow member can only use the mecha that's colored yellow for example blue guy blue mecha Black guy? Black Mecca. You get the idea. So again, we're starting to see that the Helmets, in fact, is basically some sort of mental key to something because by undergoing the quest you're able to change the way you think a little bit. In fact, we've noticed that when the various characters undergo the quest, they tend to broaden their, their way of thinking or undergo some sort of change to it. They... Angry members become more centered, for example, or the pacifist members become a little bit more aggressive. That is, they in order to better sync with their Mecca or to obtain a new Mecca, they actually have to undergo some sort of enlightenment. Which of course further brings evidence that to a certain degree being a Sentai member is a certain level of mentality, and by accessing that different aspects of your mentality, you're able to do more interesting things in terms of the real life. So yeah, you actually do have a situation where your mentality, by becoming more enlightened, you become actually more powerful, even if it's just through an obvious focus. And just as a way to really bring up this hive mind situation... Consider that each one of the Power Rangers has a limited skill set. That is, that is, each one of them has martial arts, limited technological skills. Even the computer geek, you know, can do some really incredible stuff. But he's nowhere near what leader of, the, you know, whatever authority they apply to can actually do. So, you know, you have the situation where, They have some really good skills, but they don't quite have, you know, they're not ultra-powerful. This, of course, limited skill set makes them more dependent upon each other. And if we start looking at whatever authority is putting these guys together, you know, obviously being a team, reasonably limited skill set, and some sort of personality makes them dependent on others, is obviously going to be a major assistance. However, if we're also hooking them into some sort of hive mind setup, by having just a little bit of a skill, that means you're able to actually take that little bit of a skill and make it into a much more powerful by routing it through the supercomputer we've set up through the hive mind. In essence, you don't need us. somebody who's like expert in the field, just somebody who's reasonably decent at it. So we're taking these kids and through their helmets actually creating some really nifty situations. Going in an entirely different direction, have you also noticed that secret IDs are not the major issue as they are in other shows? In other words, if we're dealing with a superhero situation and we're talking uh, superhero with secret IDs here like Spider-Man Superman, they have a religious thing as far as their secret identities go. They do whatever they can to basically make sure that the bad guys don't find out whatever those secret identities are up to, including uh, major security precautions. However, in the Super Sentai shows, the secret identities aren't that big of a deal as far as the the monsters are concerned. I mean, as far as the parents, the bosses, that sort of thing, sure. You know, there is at least some mental effort to keep the sacred identities away from the other adults in their life which is sort of an interesting issue in and of itself the only problem is of course that not all Super Sentai shows have adults in them so it's not really a major trope, a good subtrope but not an actual trope nonetheless it is sort of interesting that the monsters don't really worry about the ideas of whoever they're up against. I mean, occasionally they do, but generally speaking, they don't really care. This, of course, brings up the interesting question of, can they actually determine the difference between humans? And does it really matter to them? Because we have already know that they don't really care about the color of the costumes. So wouldn't it make sense if they also don't care about the humans and just don't really see a difference between a human in a brightly colored uniform versus the human, you know, as soon as you basically put on just a regular plaid shirt, you're basically an entirely different person. I sort of point this out because you, one of the more interesting color things going on again is that each one of the Sentai members tends to favor that color in their civilian identities. You know, the Red Ranger will be in red, Blue Ranger will usually be in blue, Pink Ranger will usually be in pink, and so on and so forth. You know, if you basically were a semi-intelligent monster trying to figure out, or any kind of bad guy, hey, wait a sec, I've got this blue guy in a blue spandex suit, (laughs) And he's usually around, and he usually there's this blue guy, or this guy dressed around in blue, that shows up every time he's around. You know, it really wouldn't take much to put two and two together in that situation and go, hey, they're the same guy. But if you can't tell humans apart from each other for whatever reason, you know, it doesn't really matter. There is some sort of act going where, you know, they don't use these and give this people a chance to just have a you know relatively normal life. I, which I think would be sort of cool if it actually happened, but you see way too many of these villains that really don't care about rules and regs. You know, it just doesn't seem, just doesn't appear that they would have some sort of ancient treaty that basically says, hey, these are the rules of war, this is what we're going to go by, and we're going to stick to it. You know, we're going to keep the bases immune from the struggle. If the kids aren't attacking us, we're not going to worry about them. So on and so forth. The only problem again is that you see these kids actually part, and we we'll get to the escalation here in a moment. But these kids start off usually in their civilian identities. Sometimes during the bat, sometimes during the battle, they'll switch up, and so on and so forth and you know it start with the escalation series which wouldn't make sense again if there was some sort of ancient compact at that point the kids would be breaking it or they would have been informed about the situation to not attack in their civilian identities so I think that basically we have monsters that just simply can't tell one human from another and it doesn't really matter to them Um. Well, and sort of interesting is how it's sort of interesting how these kids usually get away from, from stuff I mean yes, yeah, sometimes you have them that they're actually part of a some sort of military force with military backing in that but usually like I said they're trying to keep their sacred identities hidden from other people even if it isn't the adults it is their friends So it's sort of interesting that when you start looking at these kids, most of them don't have any kind of job or extracurriculars, and if they do have jobs or extracurriculars, they're conveniently part of the same club, or they all work at the same place. And usually, their higher-up is aware of the situation that they're sentai members, and is therefore able to cover for them, or actually is able to lend them support. I mean, you have had situations where... You know, all the kids were working at the same restaurant, and the only other person, pretty much, was the authority figure. So, that's sort of interesting. Like I said, they either have no job, no extra creditors, or they belong all to the same job in the same club. Makes it really easy for them to get away. Also, these kids usually aren't all, really all that popular. You know, they're somewhat popular. They might be part of the football team, but they're not like the head quarterback usually. So that, again, that lack of... Basically, they're right in that golden spot where they're not popular enough that anybody's going to be really worried about what they're doing, but they're also not extremely unpopular enough that they're going to be the constant targets. You know, they're not the people that are being sought out to be punished or to be bullied. They're somewhere in between. That gives them a nice little social invisibility and allows them to, you know, get away in and of itself. Um, It's just sort of interesting how the job situation works for these Sentai members. And like I said, if they're part of a military, obviously the military will back them, you know, and they'll have known identities, but... Being part of an actual military, military, you know, isn't re- you, we're not talking they're usually like lieutenants and captains type of deal. If they are part of a military, it's usually lower rung members. That allows another reason that they can be easily assigned somewhere else. And under the guise of being assigned somewhere else, they can be attacking the monsters. So that's an important other form of invisibility. Yeah, it's starting to sound like these guys are like ninja. They've mastered social invisibility to a T. Walward. And let's ship over to the escalation issue because it's sort of an interesting. Now, obviously, the escalation issue works really well when it comes to dramatics. You know, you start out relatively powerless, you gain a little bit of power, gain mm-hmm. some serious power, and then. It just gets all sorts of cool after that. Well, here's where that really cool supercomputer concept, the hive mind supercomputer, comes in handy. What happens is if the only reason they can't they have to actually power up. It take you know once they start getting into battle, they actually have to charge and charge and charge, just like you see in a lot of really big bad uh, shown in tournament stuff like Dragon Ball Z. So they can't just simply go into a battle fully charged. I mean, yeah, they can go into full full uniforms, fine. But they usually have to wait a bit to bring out the weaponry. And so it only makes sense if they actually have to charge up through battle. And the more in battle they are, the more powerful they get, and therefore they're able to escalate their power as they engage in battle. Also note that the, backing this up a little bit, is that the mecha requires time to appear. That is they can't just simply start off the battle with their mecha nine times out of ten they've actually got to be in battle for a little bit of time before the mecha will even think about appearing you know there's got to be some sort of proven danger for, them, for the mecha to show up and usually that doesn't happen until the monster has gotten some serious growth on him. so the charge up series seems to actually be working um, another consideration for the escalation is that the power doesn't really start getting into it until the Power Rangers or whatever have had a chance to really sink in with each other. And even though they get better and better at this, as you can tell, as the series goes on, that you know the escalation time starts getting smaller and smaller to the point where they can get surrounded by a huge, um, a huge amount of putties, take out all those putties in record time. In fact. It takes less and less time to take out more and more putties. So obviously they're sinking in faster with each other. And once they sink in, they're able to take out the monster faster as well. And then once they take out the monster, and of course take out the monster of version 2, they have a little bit more time to figure out what's going on with the bad guy and actually tra- start tracking the bad guy down. Or trying to figure out a way to get the bad guy to show up where they can nail him. So, I just thought it was interesting that, you know, the escalation time in and of itself doesn't work unless there's actually some sort of hardwired reason. And, well, let's get real, there's a lot of charging up in a lot of different types of anime. It it would make sense if they would be using the combat itself to charge up, to get in sync with each other. And as they get more charged up, more in sync, they also get more powerful, just like they do in a lot of other anime. It's just that instead of taking meditation and practice, it takes physical activity of some sort. And last but not least, have you ever noticed how the cities themselves are regularly undamaged by all this combat? Or if they do get some combat damage, it's like absolutely minimal and easily rep- easy to repair? This basically comes up with a couple of different solutions. There are a couple of different solutions. The one that probably is the most effective, the most obvious, but at the same time doesn't really work, is that the buildings could be strengthened by some sort of field. That is, when the combat, when they two, when you start dealing with the Mecha and the, you know, the big giant version of the monster there's some sort of field within the combat that basically acts as an integrity field and strengthens the building around it. This obviously sounds cool, but there are some obvious issues with it. Not the least of which is, why? Especially considering some of these monsters are out to do as much damage as they possibly can. Um, worth noting, of course, that some of these monsters in the Mecca themselves tend to be a lot stronger outside the city, so there actually is a little bit, you know, they're having a fight out on a plain filled with no buildings around. The explosions get a little bit bigger. The damage gets a little bit nastier, so on and so forth. So there is a little bit of evidence that there is some sort of integrity filled. But it could be just be that the bad guy and the good guy are feeling a little bit more free to throw energy around. The other option, of course, is that the effects don't affect ex- or- inorganic materials, or more accurate, so I would almost put that there's an organic element to the mecha, which is sort of an interesting idea in of itself. But that would also explain why the mecha can actually advance. You know, gain more powers as the series progresses. It's because of that organic aspect of them, they actually are capable of growth. And of course it would also explain why a lot of the buildings aren't affected by the damage because if you've got this really cool blaster that can't affect inorganic materials like cement and steel and glass hey, all of a sudden you've got a major solution to your battles and it can affect the organic mecha. As well as the obviously organic parts inside of that mecha. One idea that's been brought up in a couple of different other enemies, enemies um, such as x and I want to say X99. In essence, it's a group of mages that pair off, and as long and depending on if the good guy or the bad guy wins, well. Anytime they get into a fight, they, get into a, they set up a, sass, a stasis field of some sort. They can do as much damage as they want, but the damage is only permanent if the bad guy wins. If the good guy wins, everything is set back to normal. Which actually sort of works when you actually look at the Power Rangers because, well, anytime time they get into a fight, 9 times out of 10 there's a little bit of damage here and there like building an explosion exploding and all that but miraculously when the combat is over well all of a sudden the buildings have been reset so the status field idea pretty much works out best out of the way it also means that as ultra-sciencey as everything looks there's more of a magic field than the actual Power Rangers which sort of explains a whole lot more than the super science does yeah. On the other hand, going back to the, the dreaded uh, supercomputer version, wouldn't it be weird if all this was actually happening within the virtual realm. And nine times out of ten, well, obviously at this point the theory breaks down because you know you've got way too many people have actually seen the combat, and it would make no sense for it to be part of the virtual realm. You know, something that only the Rangers and the monsters were able to partake in. I mean, other than that, it would be one heck of an augmented reality app, but you know it's just this is the one time where it's obviously not the highest mind working in favor, and in all honesty, it probably works best with some sort of status field in ops ops so you we know, ask is how does it all work? Yeah, this is a mistake to ask that question at this point. You've got some sort of higher authority. I haven't really messed around with the higher authority, by the way, because there aren't, even though there is one, and he's definitely older and more experienced and more combat-ready. There's just a lot of weirdness to why there's just too many variations among the higher authority. So, yes, there is one, but the details don't really, you know, don't really... It's just there's too many changes between the various series. So we'll keep mentioning the power of higher authority, but we're not going to actually detail this person out for the purpose of this podcast. However, when it comes to the teens themselves, obviously we're going to set some sort of team up, throw in some some sort of color-based hierarchy into the situation. Um... We're obviously going to be using teens because, well, teens are easy to train, easy to manipulate, and they make great soldiers. Make sure they have some sort of limited skill set. You know, they're good at what they do, but they're not the world's best. Set up a situation where they either have no jobs or extracurriculars or make sure that they've got the same job and they're part of the same club. All this means that You've got a great group of teens that are going to be working together and can disappear from, you know, whatever scene they're in, especially during danger situations. The bad guy just simply doesn't care about who their secret identity is. Obviously, due to some sort of specious issue. And the city itself isn't going to have to worry about... and. This applies to the Zords as well because, well, whatever the mecha they're dealing with are obviously not going to be that easy to steal. On top of that, the city they're in, nine times out of ten, will take some ridiculous heavy damage, but they'll be restored due to the stasis field that surrounds the combat. It takes them a little while to charge up. and As they charge up, they're able to get rid of, uh, use more power, and so that this explains the escalation issue. The base is either a virtual realm or it's just simply, you know, hard, really hard to get to. I prefer the virtual realm because it's a nice little science fiction thing, but you know, you're you know, your miles may vary. All told, it looks like there's more of a. Those helmets all the various Sentai wear are in actuality mind helmets. They're actually able to connect the minds of the people involved and allow them to access parts of the brain that they just generally don't access, making them allow, allowing them to operate at a much higher level than they used to. So, that's my take on the Super Sentai. Hope you enjoyed it.